0: Hey everyone, it's Jamie. Today, I'm re-releasing a previous episode of Murderish, covering the case of Alexander Urtula, who died by suicide at the age of 22. Alexander died on May 20th of 2019, the day of his graduation from Boston College. After his controversial death, police discovered that Alexander had encouraging text messages from his girlfriend, telling him to do it. This episode involves discussions about suicide. Listener discretion is advised. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Modern technology has presented the American justice system with an array of unique advantages, but also many challenges. Within the last decade, Advancements like smartphones, social media platforms, and GPS tracking have been used in criminal acts. Nowadays, technology accelerates at such a rapid pace that oftentimes the law cannot keep up. In these cases, either a legal precedent doesn't exist or the offense lands in a legal gray area. Michelle Carter is just one recent example. Her case centered around text messages that allegedly encouraged suicide. In February of 2015, 17-year-old Michelle Carter was indicted on charges connected to the suicide of her 18-year-old boyfriend, Conrad Roy Jr. III. In a controversial 2017 trial, a Taunton, Massachusetts jury found her guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Though Carter faced up to 20 years in prison, she was sentenced to just 15 months and was released after a year. A similar case occurred in May of 2019, though it received much less publicity. Boston College students In Young Yu and her boyfriend, Alexander Ertula, had been dating for 18 months when he died by suicide. An investigation would uncover an abundance of abusive text messages from In Young in the months leading up to Alexander's death. The Carter and Yu cases both occurred in Massachusetts, involved modern devices and abusive text messages being sent that many argue is what drove both victims to end their lives. Michelle Carter infamously told a suicidal Conrad, after he got cold feet, to get back in a truck overtaken by carbon monoxide. 21-year-old In Young You was an abuser. She got off on tearing her boyfriend down, piece by piece. But where does free will and the power of suggestion take over? Is it possible to brainwash someone into ending their own life? Let's see if we can get any closer to answers as we explore this case. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the case involving Alexander Ortula. Boston College is located in the Chestnut Hill area of New England's largest city. The private Roman Catholic University prides itself on being a research institution in the fields like nursing, law, and social work. Chestnut Hill is an upscale historic neighborhood. It's considered a highly desirable part of Boston and has a price tag to match. Students at the school have the privilege of enjoying a sprawling campus, a short distance from the city's downtown nightlife. But it's also not the easiest school to get into, especially compared to other non-Ivy League schools. According to its website, Boston College, or BC, has an acceptance rate of around 26% as of 2020. In comparison, U.S. News & World Report revealed, in 2021, most four-year universities in the U.S. accept around 70% of applicants. According to 2021 census data, the city of Boston has around 650,000 residents. 9.8% of its population are of Asian descent, like the BC students in this case. Very little has been made public about In Young Yoo's early life. We know that she's a native of South Korea. She became a naturalized US citizen after spending her youth in Washington state. In the fall of 2016, Inyoung enrolled at Boston College to study economics. As reported by Vice, In 2017, In Young served as treasurer of the Philippine Society of Boston College, or PSBC. According to the group's Facebook page, PSBC is an organization that celebrates the beauty and richness of the Philippine's culture. Meetings and social events hosted by the group often draw students from diverse backgrounds, providing a safe and welcoming space to build a sense of community on campus. It was at a PSBC meeting in late 2017 that In Young Yu met Alexander Ortula. She was immediately impressed by Alex's warm, outgoing nature, and she admired the passion he had for his culture. Alex, who was a year older than In Young, was a social butterfly. He made a lot of friends by handing out PSBC flyers on campus and promoting events on the group's social media. In Young, on the other hand, was much more reserved and introspective. Alexander R. Urtula was the son of Filipino immigrants Alberto and Rosa. According to LinkedIn, Alberto worked at General Motors and Ford in the Philippines until the late 1970s. In 1977, he and his wife Rosa immigrated to the United States. Alberto started working as the director of facilities management and engineering at a pharmaceuticals company. In this position, he earned enough money to start a family with Rosa. They purchased a house in Cedar Grove, New Jersey, a small suburb roughly 20 miles west of Midtown Manhattan. Alexander was the Urtulas' firstborn, followed by their second son, Brian, a few years later. Alex's childhood was typical for someone in a middle class suburban family. In school, he was friendly, attentive, fun loving, and highly intelligent. As he got older, Alex became very active in his community. According to the Boston Globe, he taught taekwondo to children and volunteered at a local food bank for several years. As a student at Regis High School, Alex was a valued member of the tennis club and medical science club. Alex knew since childhood that he wanted to become a doctor, so when he enrolled at Boston College, he declared a major in biology. Alex and In Young began dating in December of 2017, a few weeks after they first met. From the beginning, their relationship was volatile. It started with small disagreements that soon became far worse. There was a major turning point when Inyoung discovered Alex was still communicating with an ex-girlfriend who also attended Boston College. This sent In into a jealous rage that fueled her actions going forward. Desperate to regain control and ease her deep insecurities, In began giving Alex less and less autonomy. She isolated him from friends, or really anyone she viewed as a threat. Alex was forced to block a lot of people he cared about on social media. It was clear In expected to be the center of attention at all times. According to the US National Domestic Violence Hotline, One common sign of abusive behavior in a partner is preventing or discouraging you from spending time with friends, family members, or peers. Abusers often isolate their victims to remove their support system, making it much more difficult for the abused to end the relationship. In Young's abuse soon escalated, specifically in the months leading up to Alex's graduation. It enraged her to know that Alex would see all of his friends including the ex she deeply resented. As graduation day approached, Inyoung insisted that Alex keep his smartphone's location services switched on. This wasn't done out of concern for his safety. It was so she could monitor his whereabouts at all times. The constant arguments between the couple always ended the same way, with Inyoung bombarding Alex with a series of deeply disparaging text messages. Alex's friends began to notice a drastic change in his behavior. According to CBS News, his close friends would later tell officials that prior to his relationship with Inyoung, Alex was driven, strong-willed, and a leader. Nearly a year into the abusive relationship, he suddenly seemed withdrawn and despondent, despite having no previous history of depression. Some of Alex's friends even witnessed In Young's toxic behavior firsthand. She verbally and physically berated Alex in front of them, calling him names and using explicit language. But it didn't end there. She would follow up with an endless stream of cruel text messages, leaving a digital trail of evidence for the tragedy about to unfold. According to court documents, in the fall of 2018, Alex stopped living on campus. We don't know for sure if that decision was made to put distance between him and his girlfriend, but that would certainly make sense. Alex alternated between his parents' New Jersey residence and his brother's apartment in New York while completing online courses. The relationship with Inyoung continued long distance. Inyoung's text messages and FaceTime calls remained verbally and psychologically abusive. In early December, 2018, Alex reached out to two of his close friends via text message. According to CBS News, he wrote, I'm worried. I need help. I can't do this alone. One of Alex's friends found this so concerning, they reportedly reached out to an emergency services hotline. In addition to tearing down his sense of self-worth, In Young controlled her boyfriend through emotional manipulation. Anytime Alex tried to end the relationship, she always threatened to harm herself. This was just another cog in the cycle of abuse, making Alex feel like he was solely accountable for her well being. The severity of In Young's maltreatment and the toll it took on Alex's mental health would not come to light until May of 2019, 18 months into their relationship. On the afternoon of May 19, 2019, the Urtula family piled into their car to make the journey from New Jersey to Boston. They were all very excited for Alex's college graduation ceremony the next morning. The Urtulas couldn't be more proud. Alex would be the first one in the family with a college degree. Alex was on track to pursue a career in medicine. In the summer of 2018, he landed a research assistant position at Boston College's acclaimed Brigham and Women's Hospital. Alex's time working in the hematology division gave him some practical experience in the field he was passionate about pursuing. The night before his graduation, Alex slept at Inyoung's dorm while his family stayed in a hotel. It remains uncertain what exactly transpired that night, but it would be reasonable to assume that In treated Alex the same way she had throughout their relationship. Alex woke up early the next morning and left his girlfriend's dorm. He took an Uber to a hotel parking garage just after 7 a.m. Roughly 40 minutes later, as reported by the Daily Beast, Alex sent a text message to In Young. It read, I'm not talking to anyone. I won't ever again. I'm happy I got to spend my last night with you. I love you, In Young, until my last breath. A rapid exchange of text messages followed. In Young noticed that Alex had switched off GPS on his smartphone. Throughout the conversation, she begged Alex to turn it back on. When he finally complied, In Young called Alex's brother and sent him a screenshot of the pinned location. As reported by CBS News, Alex's brother told In Young to call 911. Instead, she got into an Uber and headed toward the Renaissance parking garage located near Ruggles Station in Roxbury. There, Inyoung saw her boyfriend. But moments after spotting Inyoung, and just a few hours before he was due to graduate college, Alexander Ertula jumped to his death. Alex's death was ruled a suicide by local authorities. When his friends came forward about his deeply troubled relationship, however, Suffolk County detectives were prompted to investigate. National media immediately began to draw parallels between this and the Michelle Carter case. Two years prior, Carter's unprecedented suicide by coercion trial resulted in a guilty verdict. The case received ample media coverage, while the publicity surrounding Alex's death wasn't as widespread, at least initially. It was a strange coincidence that both legal predicaments occurred in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. According to People.com, as of March 2022, the Bay State doesn't have any statute criminalizing suicide coercion, although 42 other states do. Ever since Conrad Roy Jr. III died by suicide at the persuasion of Michelle Carter, his mother Lynn has been fighting for a change in legislature. If passed, Conrad's law would make suicide coercion convictions punishable by up to five years in prison. But with no such law to lean on, prosecutors involved in In Young's case had their work cut out for them. They did, however, have a digital trail of indisputable abuse leading up to Alex's death, unlike the Carter case. While the case against Inyoung was being built, she dropped out of school. In the late fall of 2019, the 21-year-old moved back to South Korea. She would have graduated in May of the following year if she had stayed. From the standpoint of law enforcement, leaving the country while you're suspected of a crime only adds to the appearance of wrongdoing. When the DA's office subpoenaed In cell phone records, there was a lot to unpack. According to the Boston Globe, in the two months leading up to Alex's death, he received almost 800 text messages a day from his girlfriend, amounting to a total of 74,000 messages. Among the messages were hundreds of statements urging him to go kill yourself and go die. In combing through their communications, it didn't take long for investigators to conclude that In was derogatory and sadistic. She preyed on Alex's feelings to manipulate him at every turn. One unnamed friend told assistant DA Caitlin Grosso that Alex wanted to part ways with In but didn't think he could. According to CBS News, this friend said, The reason he didn't feel comfortable ending the relationship was because he knew if he did that, she would do something drastic, like hurt or kill herself. Alex also kept handwritten journals. His entries helped investigators weigh the emotional toll of In Young's abuse. As quoted by CBS News, Alex wrote, She attacks my self-worth. Whenever we argue, it always reverts back to the past, how I lied and hurt her before and how she doesn't believe it won't happen again. Then when I agreed to end it because she says she's done with me because I am a horrible fuck-up that's just burdening everyone's life, she in turn threatens to kill herself because of me. The question that arose was whether it was a crime to emotionally abuse someone to the point of decimating their self-worth. The answer is no. What ultimately enabled an indictment of manslaughter, was one fundamental truth. Digital evidence revealed Inyoung had known Alex's exact location for an hour, and she didn't alert authorities about his suicidal state. A conviction, however, couldn't be made until Inyoung was back in the country. On October 28, 2019, over five months after Alex's death, she was charged with involuntary manslaughter. When the controversial indictment was announced, reactions were mixed. Those who'd been opposed to the Michelle Carter case questioned the legality of this more recent texting suicide case. A spokesperson from the Massachusetts ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, told the Boston Globe, this case is indisputably tragic and our thoughts are with Alexander's family and friends. We continue to have concerns that involuntary manslaughter prosecutions are not constitutional when they are based solely encouraging speech. Over the next few weeks, In Young hired the PR firm Rasky Partners, Inc. to cast her in a more favorable light. Text messages that implied she tried to stop Alex from jumping and had reached out to his brother for help were made public. That was the distinction between In Young Yu's case and the Carter case, at least according to the PR firm. In insisted that she had tried to stop Alex from jumping. She hadn't even been in the country when the indictment was announced. As reported by the Boston Globe, if In Young had refused to return to Boston to face charges, DA Rachel Rollins would have threatened to extradite her. Boston-based criminal defense attorney Norman Zalkind, who's represented clients in international cases, told the Boston Globe In Young could have fought extradition. It would have been her prerogative to take the stance that allegations were not against South Korean law, where she had relocated. After the indictment, however, Inyoung Yu willingly returned to Boston in November of 2019 for her first court appearance. At the center of the November 22nd arraignment was the abusive nature of In and Alex's relationship. In recent years, public awareness has been raised about male victims of domestic violence, but it remains a stigmatized issue. According to the CDC, approximately 1 in 10 American men have experienced intimate partner violence in the form of sexual and physical abuse, as well as stalking. It's far more common than anyone realizes, and yet many male victims don't come forward due to societal, cultural, and gender norms. Emotional blackmail factored heavily in Alex's silent suffering. While it's apparent his closest friends knew about In Young's behavior, there is no indication that Alex sought professional help to deal with his situation. Prosecutors felt strongly that without In Young's negative influence, Alex never would have considered ending his life. As reported by USA Today, Assistant DA Grosso stated at the arraignment, the abuse intensified in the days and hours leading to Mr. Urtula's death, and the defendant's abuse was the cause of Mr. Urtula's suicide. As reported by Boston Magazine, several of Alex's friends made statements at the hearing. One friend recalled him leaving parties early when Inyoung threatened self-harm. In the months leading up to his death, Alex struggled with frequent panic attacks. His friends believed the heightened anxiety was directly linked to the trauma young inflicted. Several disconcerting text messages exchanged between Alex and Inyoung were read aloud by prosecutors. Assistant DA Grosso cited messages from Alex that contained phrases like, You own all of me, and your happiness is my only priority. According to Boston Magazine, Grosso added, that Alex had even started to ask his girlfriend for permission to sleep during his final weeks. As quoted by USA Today, Assistant DA Caitlin Grosso drove the point home by saying, These text messages demonstrate the power dynamic of the relationship. Both the defendant and Mr. Urtula discussed how the defendant owned Urtula how he was her slave, and how Mr. Ertula ceded his autonomy to the defendant as a condition of their relationship. At one point, Alex expressed awareness that he was being abused and begged Inyoung to stop. According to the Boston Globe, Inyoung responded by writing, Abuse? You think I abuse you? Please tell me how you're the victim here. Please enlighten me. Alex's reaction revealed just how psychologically entangled he was at that point. As quoted by the same source, Alex replied, In Young, please, I'll do whatever you want. I'll leave this fucking earth. I'll go die. According to USA Today, D.A. Rollins closed the hearing by saying, Words matter. Demeaning language, ridicule, and verbal abuse can deeply impact people. The text messages presented at the hearing were just a glimpse into the horror Alex endured. The judge believed the case was strong enough to proceed with a trial. At the close of the 30-minute arraignment, In Young was handcuffed and taken into custody. As reported by USA Today, in exchange for surrendering, turning in her passport and agreeing to stay within state lines, the magistrate set In Young's bail at the low sum of $5,000. Before long, family members posted bond and a trial was set for November 9, 2020. In Young faced a maximum penalty of 20 years in prison if she was found guilty of manslaughter. Following the hearing, In Young's attorney, Stephen Kim, pushed back against allegations faced by his client. Speaking with CBS News, Kim called the text messages cherry-picked statements taken out of context. He said the DA's office branded an emotionally fragile young woman a monster to the entire world, further traumatizing her. Kim commented further and was quoted by USA Today as saying, I've never seen in my entire career such an unjust, callous behavior by a district attorney that I can only conclude was a cheap pursuit of headlines. She got them. When the facts come out, it will be clear that these two young individuals, very needy emotionally, were involved in a relationship that became a toxic blend of fear, anger, need, and love. Many people disagreed with Kim's implication that the pairing itself was to blame, like oil and water not mixing. He suggested the suicide had simply been Alex's decision, an act of free will but Alex's friends insisted the relationship had caused him irreparable psychological damage that had not existed before In Young entered his life. For many of Alex's classmates, news of the indictment drudged up complicated feelings about the situation all over again. Undeniably, some startling realities about suicide and abusive relationships had come to the forefront. Katrina Sullivan, a Boston College senior at the time, gave Insider her take on the charges in Young faced. She said, I think you definitely should be held accountable. It is like any abusive relationship. It doesn't matter if it is words or physical actions. It is still a problem. Despite public campaigns like mental health awareness month in May and trending hashtags, mental illness remains a widespread social stigma. Boston College sophomore Ann Wynn told Insider that In Young had mentioned being a patient at the campus mental health clinic, though she didn't mention when or for how long. When questioned about Alex's suicide, Wynn told Insider, being on this university campus, there is a culture of mental health problems not being addressed. I feel like we can all relate on some level, but it just feels horrible for his family and friends. She commented further on the case by saying, I feel like text messages, that is something going on for a while. It isn't that difficult to pick up on. Just ask them how they are. We should make a better effort to reach out to people. It was difficult for anyone to accept that Alex had confided in friends about the relationship he perceived as being inescapable. A representative from Boston College confirmed to CBS News that no one reported Alex being in an abusive relationship and never reached out for support. One classmate who asked to remain anonymous confided to Insider, I know them both, but I knew Alex better. I really looked up to him and so did a lot of people. Those sentiments were echoed by numerous people whose lives were better for having known Alex. Family friend, Tim Smith, who had known Alex for more than 15 years told the Boston Globe, He was a remarkable young man who could have done anything in this world. Natana J. DeLongbaugh, a theology professor at Boston College, was devastated by Alex's death and the circumstances surrounding the case. Alex had left a positive, lasting impression when he was enrolled in her year-long seminar. She said to the Boston Globe, he was a thoughtful participant, always trying to see how to apply what he learned in class. He was always busy involved with activities and especially with people. I know he would have been an excellent doctor." Alex was just hours away from receiving his college diploma when he seemed to have reached his breaking point. The mere sight of his abuser was enough to make him take that fatal leap. With all of the shocking details emerging from the DA's office, It was increasingly difficult not to blame the young woman who had constantly urged Alex to end his life. While awaiting the upcoming trial, Suffolk County District Attorney Rachel Rollins released a statement. As reported by CBS News, it stated, We will honor Alexander and his legacy by holding the defendant accountable for her relentless, reckless, abusive, and criminal behavior. Ms. Yu was aware of his spiraling depression and suicidal thoughts brought on by her abuse. Even still, she continued to encourage Mr. Ertula to take his own life. But several legal experts expressed to media outlets the complexity of this case and any similar cases that may arise. Daniel Medwed, a law professor at Northeastern University, commented to Insider, It's easy for people to look at the details emerging in Yu's case and say, this is horrible, let's throw the book at her. But you want to craft a law that captures much more nuanced cases. With manslaughter, you have to prove a direct cause. It's much harder to prove that causation with a suicide. I just don't think manslaughter is a good crime to fit these situations. Jonathan Singer, former president of the American Association of Suicidology, also thought the case wasn't as clear-cut as it appeared. He explained to Insider, one of the things that the general public should keep in mind is that it's easy to reverse-diagnose suicide. You can look at a situation like this after the fact and say, ah, clearly those texts were the cause. It could also have been things we have no documentation about. Unlike in murder cases, where there's usually forensic evidence to convict the accused, there was no identifiable culprit in the legal sphere. All that remained after Alex died was a heartbreaking void. The positive vibes he once radiated had been forever dimmed by hateful words on a smartphone screen. In Young Yoo's trial was delayed when her defense attorney, Stephen Kim, filed an appeal. He requested that the charges against his client be dismissed. As reported by Boston College newspaper, The Heights, Kim justified the appeal in a statement that read, There are very important legal and practical issues that this case has generated. Issues that are not just novel, but ones that will have wide potential implications and ramifications on what types of speech and conduct can and should be criminalized. In January of 2021, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, or SJC, began a review of the case. According to a legal filing, the SJC was presented by the incredibly complex question of how to apply the common law standard of involuntary manslaughter to a self-inflicted death allegedly caused by the wholly verbal intervention of another. The SJC document went on to detail how the single charge of involuntary manslaughter encompassed two factual theories, manslaughter by commission and manslaughter by omission. As stated by the SJC, manslaughter by commission, in this case, is defined as overwhelming Ertula's will to live. Manslaughter by omission is explained as the defendant realizing that Ertula was actually about to commit suicide and then taking insufficient steps to prevent him from doing so. In August of 2021, Suffolk Superior Court Judge Christine Roach denied the defense's motion to dismiss the charges. The judge did, however, rule that the manslaughter by omission angle was the most suitable. The Commonwealth of Massachusetts intended to proceed with a trial. Alex had been gone for over two years by the time In appeal was denied. As we know, the wheels of justice move painfully slow. In the meantime, this had become a high-profile case. Maybe In Young Yoo, now 23, was tired of fighting. Maybe she finally realized the serious impact her disparaging attacks had on Alex's well-being. But, most likely, she wanted to avoid a long, tedious trial with even more publicity. It's also likely her legal counsel advised against going to trial. The odds were not in her favor. In late December of 2021, just days before Christmas, In Young appeared in Suffolk Superior Court in Boston for a pretrial hearing. Before Judge Robert Ullman, she entered a guilty plea to the charge of involuntary manslaughter. The plea agreement came with a suspended sentence of two and a half years of incarceration. If she abided by the terms of probation, she could completely avoid spending time behind bars. According to the Boston Herald, key conditions of the probation included required mental health treatment, and 300 hours of community service. The judge also forbade In Young from selling her story or profiting in any way from the case. As documented by the Boston Herald, Judge Ullman concluded the hearing by saying, Ms. Yu, I have one request. I just ask that you make every possible effort to live your life in a way that honors the memory of Alexander Urtula. Following the plea deal, the Urtula family handled the situation with remarkable grace. They opted out of talking to the media, instead, releasing a single public statement. As aired on CBS News, it read, We bear no feelings of anger or reprisal. We believe that time will take us through in the moments we mourn and celebrate life. In this case, just like the Michelle Carter case, there are no easy answers, and there doesn't seem to be any sense of closure. At the root of this story is the issue of suicide. There are many contributing factors that can drive someone to a devastating and permanent extreme. It's not an easy subject for anyone to discuss. Maybe, in starting conversations about abusive relationships, suicide, and the dangerous role technology can play in our lives, we are one step closer to prevention. If you or someone you know is struggling with depression or suicidal thoughts, help is available. The U.S. Suicide Prevention Lifeline can be reached at one 800 273 8255 If you or someone you know is in an abusive or unsafe relationship, resources and support are available from the National Domestic Violence Hotline in the U.S. Visit theHotline.org or call one 800 You guys, don't forget to check out my new podcast, Dirty Money Moves, Women in White Collar Crime. The podcast follows my investigation of a woman I met a few years ago, a woman who turned out to be a prolific scam artist. It's a wild story with ties to the Michael Jackson scandal. You can subscribe to Dirty Money Moves wherever you're listening right now. I appreciate you for joining me on this episode of Murderish. If you've binged every episode and don't want to wait for the next one to drop, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. As soon as you sign up, you get immediate access to a bunch of ad-free Murderish episodes that cover cases not available on the free version of the podcast. To become a Patreon supporter, visit Murderish.com and click the link to go behind the scenes. Or just go to Patreon.com and search for Murderish there. I want to say a big thank you to Dara L., Heather H., and Moira K. for becoming Patreon supporters. Thank you all so much. I appreciate your support. If you enjoy Murderish, there are so many ways you can support the show. Tell your friends about the podcast, or just leave the show a positive rating and review in any podcast app. This helps other people find the show easier. You can also wear a Murderish t-shirt while you're out and about, and trust me, it's a great conversation starter. Check out Murderish.com for a link to buy t-shirts, bags, coffee mugs, and so much more. Also, don't forget to follow Murderish on Instagram and TikTok at Murderish Podcast. You can also find the show on Twitter and Facebook. Murderish Sound Design and Audio Editing is by Justin Hellstrom. Some of the music was composed by Nico of We Talk of Dreams. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. As always, ishers, thank you for joining me on another episode of Murderish. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.